0: howdy folks ryan here just a quick note before we get started uh we recorded this episode uh a, a few days ago and it centers around a fellow named uh, russell maroon Schotz, um a guy who uh had when at the time of recording been in prison for 49 years um and and was uh h- had terminal cancer and and uh had been denied any kind of parole um and we discuss a lot about the injustice of, of his story and and so on and so forth. Uh, but to my quite considerable surprise, Schultz was actually released uh, after we recorded this episode. Um, so a little tiny bit of mercy happened in the American criminal justice system. Um Probably didn't have much to do with us recording this, and much more to do with uh, our guest Ashley Lucas's tireless activism, uh, along with you know the efforts of his uh, family and himself. Um, as you'll hear, Mister Schotz was a pretty, a pretty remarkable uh, fellow. Um, so anyway, uh, let's uh, l- not delay any longer and get started.
1: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexei the Greek.
0: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, we're welcoming new guests to the show today, uh, Ashley Lucas, who is a theater professor and director of uh, Latino, Latina studies at the University of Michigan, author of Prison Theater and uh, Global, The Global Crisis of Incarceration, a book, that is. Um, and we, we want to have her on to talk about this article in The, the Plow, that Pla- am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. The plow, the not the plough, <laughs> the end of rage, um, which is about an, an incarceration in a Pennsylvania in and a, a particular story of of one uh, gentleman and his family. So, welcome to the
2: show, Ashley. Thank you. I'm honored and delighted. My husband is your absolute biggest fan and raves about how brilliant you are and how easy to talk to. So I feel like I've just been incredibly honored to be invited to the Left Anchor podcast. So thank
0: you. Oh, you're too kind. Um, We're
1: so glad to have you. And we should mention that that Phil Phil Chrisman is a friend of the pod, a former guest on the pod, and hopefully we'll have him on again um, so that uh, it could be a family affair. You know, we could we could keep this going. It'd be great.
2: That sounds great. I know he'd love to come back.
0: So, yeah, to 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 dip our to to start us off here, um, your article centers around uh, Russell Maroon. Show, shows 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 uh shoots uh a, a, a gentleman from uh Phil- from Philadelphia if i'm not mistaken yes. if i remember correctly um and so to 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 kick us off can you tell us like about this this fellow's early life you know what what he uh his you know experience growing up in Philadelphia in like, what was it, 1940s, 1950s? um, And what led him to, you know, kind of um, uh, a life of crime, I guess,
2: for lack of a better word. Well, Russell Schultz is a terribly interesting man. He grew up in Philadelphia. He came from a big family. There were, uh, I think, eight children or nine children in the Schultz family. And uh, Russell, was always embedded very much in his neighborhood, in his community, in Philadelphia. And he's an African-American and knew from a very early age that somehow people like him were not folks who mattered to the police. In fact, they were routinely chased, harassed, beaten, and even killed by police in his neighborhood. And I, I think the world out here in many ways, people who were privileged enough not to think about these issues had a big reckoning with the death of George Floyd. But researching this story just drove home for me what I already knew, which is that we have been killing black people in the United States, that police specifically have been killing black people in the United States for many, many generations. It wasn't just Emmett Till. It wasn't just uh, the people whose names we know, the Ahmad Aubrey's and the Brianna Taylors, and the lists go on and on and on, just this litany of pain. And Russell Schultz, before he understood that that was a national or international phenomenon, before he had a, a political consciousness of any kind as a small child, he saw men in his neighborhood being grabbed out of cars by the police, being beaten in the streets, and he didn't know why that was a thing that had to happen. And he didn't know why it kept happening over and over and over again. And as a a young teenager, you know, 13 years old, 14 years old, he started seeing the the older guys, the people he called old heads in the neighborhood, some of whom were not at all old. They were just in their 20s on the street corner doing different things. He learned from them that he needed to get beaten up as a part of his initiation into the neighborhood and eventually into gang life in that neighborhood because that's what he should expect from the police. And the old heads thought that they were doing the younger boys a kind of favor by beating them up before the police got to them so that they would know what to expect when the police showed up. And that enduring pain, that sort of generational trauma that's actually being taught to these kids was really uh, formative for Russell Shotes. And he, when he got to be in his younger, his young adulthood, he had a formative experience where he actually saw uh, a mother grieving over the body of another young man in the neighborhood who had just been killed by the police. This guy was apparently involved in uh, some kind of a minor car theft, and he gets chased by a local police officer, and eventually he abandons the car, he runs through the neighborhood, a police officer follows on foot, this young man runs into his own house and hides behind his mother in the kitchen. And the, the cop follows him into the house and is racing around the mother to try to get to him. Eventually, the young man exits the house into the yard, and around the time he does that, the police officer shoots him. And the mother picks up a kitchen knife and stabs the police officer to try to keep him from shooting her son again, but he does shoot the son again. And the young man died, and the police officer lived. And when the ambulance came to the house to treat the police officer, they walk right by the body of the the young man on the ground. And the mother stands in a pool of her son's blood and starts telling the people in the neighborhood what happened. And watching that unfold in his own neighborhood becomes... A motivating force in the rest of Russell Schultz's life. He didn't become a kind of petty criminal who was just wanting to rip people off. He wanted justice for his people. And so he came to believe, like a lot of other young folks in the late 60s and 1970s, that killing police indiscriminately was a justifiable response to the police killing black folks indiscriminately. And, uh, That that logic was not unique to Russell Schultz. There were many underground movements of young people of all races and ethnicities in the United States in this time period. There were incredible numbers of bombings all over the U.S. from people who were targeting government buildings and police forces. And uh, specifically the Black Liberation Army, which is a, a very fragmented group because it emerged in multiple places with the same name, at different points in the 1970s uh, with unrelated cells of people who may or may not have known each other or even known that the other Black Liberation Army groups existed, they start popping up in places like Washington, D.C. and New York City and with Russell Schultz in Philadelphia with the specific aim of killing police officers. And that political organizing is what lands Russell Schultz in prison.
1: And it's easy to understand uh, why Malcolm X would be such an inspiration for Russell and why these groups would – I mean, turn to the tactics they take because their framing of it as a war uh, strikes me as quite a descriptive – Uh, descriptively accurate way to, to, uh, think about what they were encountering, which was not, uh, you know, law and order and, and procedures and, and ways to, uh, you know, contest and persuade and, um, simply choose to be responsible and, and work your way into a, a just world, but a barrage of, of violence and oppression that, uh, I think quite understandably, would, would form you to think that I, I'm not getting out of this alive and none of us are unless we do something drastic. Um, so, so I, I think that the political education uh, that you document um, is something that's quite easy to be sympathetic to from the right perspective, don't you think? Because as much as uh, we lament the cycle of violence that uh, is kicked off – as, as like Franz Fanon would say, you know, decolonization uh, isn't what's violent. Colonization is violent. And so like any, any getting out of that, that is, is going to be reckoning with that violence, right?
2: Yes, because people who have that colonial power, whatever that looks like, are not going to give it up without a fight. And that doesn't mean that I endorse the killing of police officers. I absolutely do not. I don't endorse the killing of anybody. I think killing is killing no matter who does it. And that we need to stop doing this. No to killing, people. folks. No let's killing. not
0: kill anyone.
2: That's... But at the same time, I also deeply comprehend that these violent actions didn't come out of nowhere. I don't think their tactics were right, but watching people get murdered because of the color of their skin and watching it happen in the name of the state is something that would drive people mad not insane but to rage to drive people to a state of rage that is uh, comprehensible though not justifiable and it you know in researching this story and thinking about Russell Schultz saying at some point about his his actions. He's now 78 years old and I was able to email with him through a very primitive email system that that prisons allow. And uh, it was a difficult form of communication because it's very limited and also potentially censored. But I was able to ask him some questions about why he did some of the things that he freely admits to having done, which are really shocking and violent things. And he said that he knew that he was going to end up dead or in prison. And he was trying to change the world and he was motivated by rage and humiliation. And listening to him say that actually made me think about one of my students at the University of Michigan who is not a violent soul, has never harmed anyone to the best of my knowledge. And he would always joke with me about how people over the age of 25 were old because in his mind, everybody who was past 25 was a really old person. And he made this joke so often that I finally asked my student, why do you make this? That's not a really funny joke, and it hurts some people's feelings, and what is that about? And he says, well, you know, in all honesty, I grew up thinking that as a black man, I wouldn't live past 25. So if you made it past 25 in his neighborhood in Detroit, you had really lived. To be old, to be past the age of 25 is a kind of success story. And... Hmm. That, that's not the exact framing that Russell Schultz put on it, but listening to him talk about how he really believed that he was definitely going to be in a grave or in a prison made me realize that that's not uncommon for a lot of young men of color in particular.
0: Yeah, there, there's the, the I mean, the way you tell this the story about, you know, how he was sort of brutalized. You know it's it's a type of thing that you you know you 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 read forward into what you know he ended up the crimes he ended up committing, the violence he enacted he he did to other people, which is terrible, but then you think to yourself if you if you know if if you can't try to put yourself in his shoes and think that that might not be a thing that you might be capable of if you had seen the type of things that he had seen. Uh, with your own eyes, and not be like I could probably end up in the same place as him. You know, I think you're lying to yourself. You know, I think I, I, I you know, you you think about watching your, your, you know, neighborhood kids be just absolutely, just you know, massacred for petty crimes or no crimes, and just beaten up constantly. You know, it brutalizes your your sense of morality. You know, you um. So can you explain to us? What did, he, what did he do to end up in prison eventually?
2: Well, that is a point of, of much contention. And so I can tell you what I know, and you can surmise what you like from that. There were—so for a time, Russell Schultz had founded, along with several other people in Philadelphia, an organization called the Black Unity Council— and they were meant to be originally a community organization. They they wanted to have a school and a daycare, a freedom school specifically, much like the Black Panthers were doing in other parts of the country at the same time. This was around the time of the original founding of the Black Panthers in Oakland, California, but Philadelphia did not yet have a chapter of the Panthers. So the the Black Unity Council starts getting the neighborhood organized. And then along the way... Russell Schotz and about eight other men and their partners in this organization, the women who were with them, decided that they needed a more militant stance against the violence that was being perpetuated against black people in their communities, and they started forming a paramilitary organization. They, they started gathering weapons and, uh, doing drills in the wilderness. Uh, unfortunately, Russell Schotz had endured a couple of stints in wilderness camps as a juvenile who had gotten in trouble with the law and had actually taught him a bunch of survival skills that he used later on for other purposes. But he and, and these other men started this, um, and the women, started a, a paramilitary organization. And so the Black Unity Council's plans for all of this kind of civic stuff that would have been public and with children and having an actual community place to hang out had to disappear because they really couldn't do their activities above ground once they had weapons. And uh, then the Black Panthers do found a chapter in Philadelphia, and the Black Unity Council kind of looks at them and goes, oh, you're not really going to be safe. You don't have people with military know-how to protect you, and you're clearly going to come under fire soon, so why don't we join you and become your security force? So then they become Black Panthers, but after a while... They have to go underground again because they've pushed themselves into even a more militaristic stance and they've gotten a hold of things like U.S. military grenades and things that they really shouldn't have. And so they couldn't be explicitly affiliated with the Panthers anymore and they become the Philadelphia cell of the Black Liberation Army which again is not an offshoot of what Assata Shakur and other people were doing in New York or anybody anywhere else in the country. They were independent of all the other BLA groups, but the Black Liberation Army that forms in Pennsylvania was largely under the direction of Russell Schultz. And on August 29, 1970, two police officers were killed by a probably members of the Black Liberation Army, in an area called Fairmount Park. So there was a a kind of police substation in the park and uh, a patrolman named James Harrington was driving a police van with his partner in an area near the park that night and several black men flagged down the van acting as if they needed help. And when Patrolman Harrington stopped to help them, one of those men shot him in the face. The bullet entered his jaw and his mouth. It shattered his jaw and most of his teeth. It took all of the hearing in one of his ears, and the bullet emerges from the back of his neck. His partner, who was African-American, was unharmed. Patrolman Harrington, who was white, survived that. He lived, but he had, as you can imagine, severe physical and emotional trauma. About half an hour later, somebody else, most likely some of the same people, Another group of men show up at the actual police substation, and there was a sergeant named Frank Harrington, who was—I'm sorry, Frank von Collin, who was on the telephone talking at the time and actually receiving the report that Patrolman Harrington had been shot nearby, and somebody was telling him to be careful, and he's just sitting there at his desk on the phone, and several rounds were fired into his chest, and he died. So. Those two killings happen in connection with one another. That same weekend, about six other police officers were shot in events that probably were not all connected. Some of it may have also had some tenuous connection to the Black Panthers or not. And uh, one group was probably some people who got really scared after being pulled over and having guns in their car. But anyway, it's this record number of shootings of Philadelphia police, all in the course of two days. The city is panicked. Um, Frank Rizzo, who was the police commissioner at the time, was notoriously racist and had actually run on an anti-black campaign uh, for mayor. A few years later, he becomes the mayor, but uh, he was actively brutalizing black people in the city of Philadelphia. And believed that all of these killings were connected to the Black Panthers. So the next morning, uh, on or a couple, I guess it was two mornings after the initial shootings, they went to Black Panther offices, and there were multiple offices across the city of Philadelphia. They round up all of these people, including women and children, in a very early morning raid. They strip them either naked or to their underwear in the streets, and the the naked pictures of the Panthers leaning against walls with their backs to the police were flashed all over newspapers all across the country. Russell Schotz was eventually convicted of the murder of Sergeant Von Collin, and that is why he went to prison. But they uh, there were five men who were initially charged in a sixth one 20 years later. He had been on the run for, for 20 years before the sixth. Person was caught and eventually acquitted. But the, the five who were picked up initially, um, or I, there were four of them picked up initially. Russell Schultz goes on the lam and doesn't get picked up for another two years. So the shooting happens in 1970. Russell Schultz doesn't get arrested and incarcerated until 1972. But he has been in the custody of the state for the vast majority of the time from 1972 to the present, uh, with the exception of two extraordinary successful escapes from
1: Pennsylvania prisons. Yes, we, we have to get to that. And, and I think it's important to note both that you write, what you document in terms of the brutality of the incarceration system and the, the policing systems um, is really, it really doesn't matter if Russell was guilty or, or innocent of the crimes for which he was convicted. Um, but I think in that narrative, it's important to note um, and then in, in, in what you wrote, he doesn't actually admit to shooting anyone, right? As far as I could tell in his autobiography, he admits to being at the location at the, the both locations, but from what you document, um, these groups are very secretive and protective of one another, and so they're not, they're not going to snitch or, or rat out each other. So it, it very well could be the case that he was not actively involved in either of these shootings um, in the sense of pulling the trigger. Um, but we won't really know that, right? Is that, is that your kind of understanding?
2: Well, so here's the thing the these five men who were convicted, who were all convicted of killing Sergeant Von Collin were, uh, they made a vow to one another that they would never reveal what actually happened that night. And to the best of my knowledge. None. All of them have been offered a a plea deal that would help them help reduce their sentences. And none of them ever took it. None of them ever told the authorities what had happened. Um, I actually do know what happened from Russell Schultz's perspective, but I have agreed with his lawyer and his family that I will not reveal that. Sure. Sure. Uh, To to your point, to, to your point, uh
1: I think what, what has been well documented and what we'll talk about a bit more is the routinized and uh, if not legal or constitutional, well-practiced uh, abuse of the human beings that are caged uh, and policed, uh, especially the brutality of the Pennsylvania system, which we can get to a little bit as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know, Ryan, where, did you have a question from that you wanted to ask for to where to go from here?
0: Uh, yeah, um, I've got, I've got a, a bunch of questions here, but, but maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how this, uh, this story is so similar to a lot of, uh, the, the activism that's going on today, similar and also, and also different, but, but basically, you know, like how this traces back, you know, to, to like, I just got a canvasser by like I live in Philadelphia, if people don't know. Um I just got a canvasser uh yesterday at my door asking, you know, from the reclaim Philadelphia asking if I support Reducing the police budget. I said, yes, cut it as far as possible. You know, like let's, let's, uh, divert that into emergency services and so on. And she was like, oh, we've got a, <laughs> we've got a commie here, boys. But, um, you know, like, like this is such a long standing thing. And, um, I guess I'm, I'm interested in, in what you think about how the, uh, the, the, the the, the the like terrain of resistance maybe has changed over the years you know because you have um, uh, uh, this 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 fellow Russell you know doing basically like like French Revolution style terrorism. Against, you know, what he perceives with a considerable uh, justification to be a totally tyrannical regime of oppression, again, you know, that is just violating his rights, you know, as outlined in the Constitution or any sense of decency on a daily basis. And today we have, you know, like people who are, I think broadly speaking, they like taking a different approach, you know, for whatever reason, but like, um, can you speak to that like like the kind of the legacy of oppression and maybe like if if you if you think like people have kind of learned from that history at all and whether you know the kind of like the the terroristic um uh, uh model of politics and uh it is or is not effective you know depending on what's going on and like that like type of question you know
2: it's a tough one to answer because I really wish uh, that, that my students, for instance, who have participated in a, a rather minor, comparatively speaking, sense of racial reckoning in our theater department at the University of Michigan, they issued a whole bunch of demands about diversity, equity, and inclusion to the faculty last year, and that has been... Uh, a landmark thing in our little tiny community that the students would organize for their rights and demand more representation and more power and agency and how we shape our theater season on our stages and so forth. They are doing some really interesting things. And when I really get down to brass tacks and try to talk to them about their inspirations for this sort of thing, their sense of history is very narrow, very short. And I wonder, I, I don't know how much the leaders of, of organizations like Black Lives Matter and Resistance Phil- Reclaim Philadelphia and other really interesting organizations around the country, I don't know how much they're studying their history. I think one of the things that inspires me about Russell Schotz is that he really got into the studying of history after his incarceration, after the events right. that made the course of his life So unchangeable and that harmed many other people in the process. But then he did a lot of reading about the reason that he is called Maroon is because he read about Maroon colonies of escaped slaves who set up uh, their own little communities of resistance and helped other people come out of slavery. And some of them actually, turned around and did bad things to other slaves, that they enabled the slave trade for other people. Um, So it's never, history is never uncomplicated and never uniform. But I wonder how much the people at the forefront of activism around these issues right now know their history and how much they are inspired from it or learning from it. Because one of the things that's so tragic about all of these groups from the 1970s was that, uh, as somebody, a dear friend said to me as I was talking to her about the story, as I was writing it, the playwright Virginia Grice, who had met Maroon and visited him in prison in a few times as one of my my inspirations and a colleague, and she said, you know, when I think about all of these men and women who are still in prison from these resistant groups of the 60s and 70s, back then they didn't know that that sentencing and parole would just keep getting extended and extended and extended. Even when you got a life sentence back in the 60s and 70s, people did not do the decades of time that hmm. that they're doing now. People in the 70s who had been yeah. given a life sentence were released after 15, 20 years, depending on what state you're in. And now I know a whole lot of people who've served more than 30, 40, 50 years. Maroon's done 49 now. And... And my friend Virginia Grice said, you know, I I just really feel for all of these people because when they did the things they did, they might have known they were going to prison, but they didn't know that the revolution wasn't coming. They thought the revolution... I I was shocked. I was shocked.
1: Right. No. So it was a time where what what was expected was upheaval and all kinds of change. Um, But to to that last point about how long the sentences became... It shocked me, and I already know quite a bit about mass incarceration and the, and the evils of it, but it shocked me to find out that in Philadelphia County, uh, you, you write that a higher percentage of the people in Philadelphia County have been sent to life without parole than the overall incarceration rate in 140 other nations. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is just a shocking thing to, to read, right? Unfathomable. Um,
2: It is. I mean, part of what is so unfathomable about it is that in the United States, whether you're in a really highly carceral space like Philadelphia or Louisiana or my home state of Texas, even if you're not or where I live in now, Michigan is a highly carceral state as well. We have 27 adult correctional facilities in one relatively small state. Um, Even if you're not in one of those places, if you live in the U.S., you are culturally brought up to believe that incarceration is an inevitable difficulty, a hard reality of our world. And that the word justice is attached to all of that carcerality, that that is what justice looks like, that when someone dies, when some terrible breach of social fabric happens, what we are supposed to want and desire is incarceration or perhaps even the death penalty and uh, that is not actually a natural logic, meaning not all societies in the world believe that, and throughout history, to incarcerate people, particularly so many people for so many different things, is just not the way humanity has always operated. And it's so ubiquitous, you know, Angela Davis talks about how hard it is to imagine a world without prisons, but we are capable of that. We're capable of imagining a world without prisons. I have a friend who did her doctoral work in Samoa, not American Samoa, the colonized part, but Samoa that still belongs to Samoans. And uh, in that community, she was researching basically what, what doesn't have to be a set of carceral practices. How does, how do justice systems function? And she's lived for many months with a family in which the husband had murdered the wife and the community's response in this very small island nation was not to lock him up but to say that for the rest of his life he was responsible for her parents that was his restitution to the whole community not just to her parents and that was a very difficult situation for all of them to live with the person who killed your child to live with the parents of the person you killed that is painful but it is a constantly working form of reckoning. It is a reckoning that you have to make peace with every day. And the whole community knew what had happened. The whole community was in on the decision that he should live with them and be their caretaker. And it wasn't about shaming him for the rest of his life. It was about figuring out how do we live safely together and how does he give back not what he took but something else that helps sustain the community that he had helped to harm or that he had actively harmed. And I know that that's a lot more complicated in a place as big and diverse as the United States. But knowing that that exists in the world somewhere gives me hope that we don't have to. I mean, my God, look at what's happening to the people in Rikers Island right now. Look at what's happening to everybody in prison because of COVID. The, the absolute devastation, the literal decimation of prison populations throughout the world, but especially in the United States because we lock up so many more people than anybody else. That ongoing tragedy needs to be more present in our minds and in our hearts. And something I should have said when I first began to speak that I always try to say when I begin speaking about these issues is how much I wish that Russell Schultz was here with us tonight to have this conversation for himself. He would have so many thoughtful and intelligent things to say that that I would never think of, and that would mean something different coming from him than they would mean from anybody else. And we don't get the chance to talk to people in prison enough, and that is another huge human tragedy.
0: Yeah, you can't even uh, you 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 like you you were saying uh, email email, uh, you know, it's like you're using some twenty year old bullshit from a private a private contractor or something, you know, or, you know, a lot of prisons nowadays, it's like you're charging the prisoner to, to, to use any sort of uh, video chat or, or a phone. Um, I mean, even the email,
2: the, each email back and forth is the cost of a postage stamp and the one they're different for different States, but the one that Russell Schultz has to use in Pennsylvania is limited to something like 2000 characters, including spaces and punctuation for each message. So sometimes I would want to talk to him about something a little bit complex because this story is all complexity and you can't, you can't do that. You can only send so much in each message.
0: And that, I think, you know, the, the, the one thing that really jumps out at your, in in your piece, you know, it's something we've all seen, but I think has really not been internalized. Certainly not at the uh, top level of American pro- politics is the brutality, the sheer brutality of the american you know criminal punishment system i mean i think it bears comparison to the soviet gulag we're talking about a similar percentage of the population that's incarcerated or otherwise under criminal supervision and the conditions are are similarly brutal you know like like lifespans terribly shortened People worked to death or kept in solitary confinement for like 40 or 50 years. I mean, like torture, unimaginable to conditions that would, if they were a, a, a parent in, you know, like most Western European countries, which are themselves no utopias in terms of prison, uh, w- would shock the conscience of anyone. You know, you you, you know, pe- like horrifying. Um, but but. Uh can you tell us a little bit, you know, like the this fellow Russell uh Maroon, he's been in prison for many years. Um and it seems like he's he's learned, he's changed his views quite considerably. Uh and and can you tell us about like what he came to conclude after, you know, spending so much time in solitary confinement? Um and uh, you know, uh, being just stuck in this this hell for so long.
2: It's a complicated question because, like many of the rest of us, Maroon continually reinvents himself. He he wasn't yeah, yeah. on some kind of straight trajectory to understand something different about the world and become a person who had more progressive thoughts over time. You know his his thinking evolved along the way and he was greatly influenced by other men in prison and by his own children and family. Russell has seven children and two wives, one legal wife and one common law wife, neither of whom have much to do with him these days. But the the seven children are all in touch with him and they're all in their fifties now. And only the eldest of them even has a memory of her father in freedom because he's been locked up since nineteen seventy two. He's done forty nine years. And these Adult children of his have lived a whole life trying to figure out who the heck they are, who the heck he is, what it means that he landed in prison, what it means that the FBI harassed them throughout their adolescence and childhood and into adulthood, trying to find out things about him, what their own encounters with the police, especially in Philadelphia, have meant uh, for those that have the Schoetz name, especially he has a son who is also named Russell Schoetz. And can you imagine what it is to be a black man stopped by the police in Philadelphia where generations of the the Von Collin family where the sergeant was murdered are still on the police force? And uh, it's just a very complicated situation. So in coming to know more about his children and their lives as parents and family members and all the complicated things that have happened, Russell has grown a greater sensitivity to what other people in the world endure. And he's been forced to reckon with the fact that ultimately what he did, I think largely in service of other black people and of his own children in particular, didn't work. The police violence against black people has not stopped. And so to have given up your life, to make that happen, to have done terrible things, to make a world in which the police don't shoot your children and for that not to come about is an incredibly painful reality. He also does have the comfort and knowledge that his actions have created positive change in the world. He's been an inspiration to a lot of people uh, of many generations underneath him who have studied revolutionary politics and thinking and who again may not, like me, approve of the tactics of killing people. His own children do not endorse what he was involved in, but they respect the fact that he wanted a better world so badly that he was willing to endure torture, incarceration, and the risk of death over and over and over again. So he became a person who, um, he had been an abuser of women. He abused both of his wives and probably other women in his lifetime, and he now very staunchly supports women's rights and wants a better world for all of the women around him, including his daughters, though he lives in a place where he hasn't had much access to women for a very, very long time. The the single gender environment of the prison is a really strange thing that we do to people to to cut folks off from the opposite sex is a a very bizarre concept. Um, So the fact that he's grown to call himself a feminist is remarkable. He also, Absolutely. Uh, you know, he went from being a person who endorsed the shooting of police to being the proud father of a policeman. One of his sons worked for the right. Washington, D.C. police. And,
1: and one of his daughters is a prison guard. Isn't she that was.
2: Right? I do not believe she is any she longer, was. but she was a prison guard. Yeah. And when I asked him how he felt about that, he, he didn't exactly say one way or the other, but he told me that when she was working as a guard, she wrote to him and asked for a literature about the Black Panthers to share with the men in the prison. Where or I don't know if she was working in a men's or a women's prison, but she wanted to share Panther literature with the folks in the prison where she worked, and he was proud to send it to her. So that's not exactly the same thing as saying, I'm proud my child is a prison guard, but he found right. ways to work through it and not condemn her or see himself as being on the other side of a war from either one of those children who worked in law enforcement and for somebody who had endorsed the killing of police, that's a huge transformation.
1: Right. It reckons with the complexity of of human life and of the ways that we've set things up. I mean, part of the reason that, um, you know, I mean, even in war, you can't escape all kinds of uh, um, terror that comes with it. But but the, the idea that Killing indiscriminate police officers might be a strategy that works, of course, ignores the the, the moral devastation and the arbitrary nature of that. And as you, you kind of reflect in your piece, reflects the arbitrary nature and the conflation of all uh, harms done onto the black population that people like Frank Rizzo and the system generally uh, do. But... Um, you know, people need a job under capitalism, right? And so you have, that's why you had some black police officers, you have people like his children who need to work somewhere. And okay, maybe they ended up where they ended up because they were thinking they could change things from the inside, but maybe they just needed a job. And and, and so we're all in a way complicit in some of these terrible systems and structures, in part because of what um, what we're forced to do for, for ourselves and our families to survive, right? And, and, and these are things that uh, don't, Admit of easy answers, but uh, it, it's really impressive to see how you can grow despite, I mean, how Russell could not just be thrown in prison in solitary confinement for, what was it, 22, 23 years in solitary confinement?
2: 22 um, years consecutively, 30 years oh, total.
1: Jesus. 30 years total. Right. Yeah. And with, I read with 23 hours a day where the lights were turned on. Yes. to, to. I mean, just... uh, Torture.
0: That's torture is what that is. It is.
1: It it, it is. um, I think it says something remarkable about the human spirit for anyone to be able to endure that and have anything to say that has any beauty or wisdom uh, or warmth or compassion in it. And and so I, I think to your point earlier about looking for inspiration for how the world might be radically different and not be so terrible... Um there's something even in these worst instances where the human spirit can be seen as capable of tremendous things. I think I think there's a lot from Russell we could learn that could give us hope um in what he endured and and what he uh what he did politically too, because you write about how he was political even in the hunger strikes and even trying to organize mm-hmm. prisoners so maybe we could talk about that a little bit because it shows that no matter how things might. Seem no matter if if you're driven to the deepest despair, even in those most confined locations, there's good to be done, and there's courageous things uh, that are political um, that we could learn from Russell about. Right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, when when Russell started going on hunger strikes, he was in a prolonged period of solitary confinement, which was not the 22 years. This was a prolonged period before they locked him in solitary for 22 years, and he had, I mean, think about it, prison staff really tend to loathe people who have killed a cop. That's, that's pretty much the lowest rung of the ladder because they're seen as a threat to prison staff. And in fact, Russell did hurt a number of prison staff along the way. So it wasn't just his initial crime that had people paranoid, but because he had managed to escape from prison twice and that involved harming quite a few guards along the way. He was always presented as an incredible danger to the staff in prison. I get that. But just because you think someone is dangerous doesn't mean that you should torture them. In fact, that usually makes a person more angry and dangerous. And after, you know, having gotten through this period where he had harmed people and had spent a lot of time trying to escape from prison and being successful in doing so a couple of times, he switched tactics, which shows an incredible amount of maturity and inventiveness to be able to change tack when the things that that seem like the big revolutionary actions weren't working so he's in prison because of one of the escapes and in this terrible terrible place of solitary confinement his food is being spit on Uh, there was the imprint of a cat's paw in his food at some point the officers would put bugs in his food very conspicuously they were making it so that he really couldn't eat except when he had legal visits or visits from his family and they could bring him food in those times. So he lost an incredible amount of weight. He was often delirious. And then he finally just said, okay, I'm, I am going on hunger strike and there are other men in this facility who are going to go on hunger strike as well in solidarity. So it was initially just him and one other man who held out for something like 20 days before Russell gets transferred out of there to go back to court for one of the many things involved in his escapes. And while he's gone, the other men got inspired and picked up the torch of the hunger strike without him even knowing, because you really don't know what's Mm -hmm. happening in a prison once you've been taken out of it. And he gets returned to the prison after his court hearings, after he's been gone for a couple of months and finds that these other men have been on hunger strike, too, and he joins in again. And they're they're striking not just because they opposed the system in some kind of obscure way, but because men were being taken out of their solitary cells and beaten. They were being searched every single day. And to be searched is not just to like, a, hey, we we'll give you a little pat down, but they literally tear up your whole cell, what few possessions you have. They often destroy things like family photographs and personal letters and things that you have in your cell. And it's hugely traumatic for people who have so little to have the staff come and rifle through their things every single day. And it was just constant harassment. So they, they didn't want anybody to die as the, the famous hunger strikers in Northern Ireland died in prison. Bobby Sands and some of the folks who followed him actually starved themselves to death. And they'd been doing their reading. They did not want to die. They wanted to live, and they wanted to live better. And so they devised a system of taking shifts in the hunger strike. So they would go for a dozen days or more, 20 days, without eating, while some of the men did eat, and the men who were eating were in charge of contacting people in the free world to tell them what the heck was going on in this prison. And so they rallied their families, they got a local radio program interested in broadcasting about them, and the families started protesting in the parking lot of the prison. The prison retaliated by saying any family members who we've spotted out there and identified are now off the visiting list. You can't visit your loved ones anymore. So then the families got more people and they all started uh, protesting in ski masks. And the drama of that got local press coverage that there were all these people in ski masks in the parking lot of the prison protesting, and the radio was talking about them all the time, and these guys were just writing letters, 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 detailing the abuses that were happening in the prison while the others went on hunger strike. So the hunger strike goes on for an incredible length of time, I mean, months and months and months, until finally the prison changed its visitation policies, reinstated all of those family members who'd been banned and kicked all of these guys out of long-term solitary confinement. And oddly enough, that series of actions is what leads Russell to spend 22 years in solitary confinement continuously. Because once he hits the general prison population, he and some other men who were lifers, who had no hope of parole, because there's no possibility of parole in these cases, uh, they wanted to form a lifers organization. And anywhere in the world, but particularly in the U.S. because we keep more people for life than anywhere else. Anytime you find a group of lifers, those are the people who are actually determining the quality of life in that prison. They have more impact than the staff because there are more of them and they're longer serving than most of the staff. And if you know you're never going home, you become deeply invested in the quality of life that you have. And so it tends to be older folks, older men and women are the lifers who are really getting organized and they help the young folks to see what often people are too young and angry and busy to take in, which is that you can make a difference and make a life in prison. And so within a very short period of time after coming out of solitary confinement, The lifers get organized, and they form a a prison-sanctioned inmate club. There are rules about how you can form a club in a prison. They followed all the rules. They were very careful about that. And then all these lifers immediately vote for Maroon to be the president of the lifers organization. The night after the election, Maroon and all the other people who were elected leaders in the lifers organization are put into solitary confinement. And there, Russell stayed for 22 years. Jesus and his offense was following the prison policy to form an inmate club and being that elected president. That says it all, doesn't it? President.
1: Yeah, that that says it all about what the system is really concerned about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than yeah. redressing harms.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: The
0: the the psychotic brutality of it. I I just finished uh, Mike Duncan's book about the uh, Marquis de Lafayette, um, and he, uh, 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 you know. French Revolutionary guy, um, he was kind of like in the middle of everything. And so like when things got really polarized, he pissed everybody off. Uh, and so he got crosswise with the Jacobins in the 1790s, and he ended up trying to run across the border to go to, you know, like the uh, royalist countries, sort of captured by the Austrians and the Prussians, and they put him in jail. And and he's he's put in jail for... Uh, I think, five years in semi-solitary confinement for some of that, you know, and he's treated badly. He loses a lot of weight. Um, And this this is an outrage, uh, an international outrage that that like this man is in solitary confinement for like multiple years. Like like the the United States government, actually, like multiple uh, the president, George Washington, in fact, is Going sort of doing uh, uh, behind the scenes, you know, like like he doesn't want to get involved in the Napoleonic Wars, but he's trying to convince uh, the the Prussians and the Austrians to say, uh, like, why don't you just cut this guy some slack? Like, this is this is kind of screwed up. Just let him go. Let him come to the U.S. Like, come on, like, come on. And and here here you have something that is so, so much worse than that, like unimaginable horror for. Uh, you know, for five times as long, um, and that is just totally unremarkable. That happens to hundreds of people. Um, I mean, the you know, Lafayette was pretty famous in his day, but but his treatment as being stuck in solitary confinement for years was unusual. That was a thing that didn't really happen that much, you know. It's like, I mean, you would get executed for lots of things. But to just like torture somebody for year after year after year after year like that was just like that was inhumane, and I think it you know, I mean I am guess I'm repeating myself a little bit, but it, it speaks to the level of the bureaucratization, and maybe maybe you could speak to this a little bit, Ashley, like the 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 way that the the inhumanity of the system the 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 punishment and the and the and the merciless cruelty of it has been bureaucratized you know like i live in west philadelphia in a black neighborhood you don't really see like the police coming and like beating people with sticks and like shooting them you know uh uh like on a daily basis that kind of thing sort of I feel like that's that I mean it doesn't not happen, you know, like like there's definitely police shootings. There was one uh, uh uh last year a couple of blocks from my house. But I feel like the the way like the brutality has been very much more routinized. Um, that that it's like people get caught up in the sort of gears of this system. And whereas like before it was much more blatant, you know, just like sort of these like rampaging, sort of, fairly racist police just running and like beating people up randomly whenever they felt like it. Now it's kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's like whenever you sort of put a toe wrong, you know, you're, you're, you are sucked into this system and you're never getting out. You know, you're going to be processed and you're going to get some kind of prison system, like a uh, sentence and you're, and like that's going to be sort of, the end of your, you know, meaning, like participation in society. And like, can you speak to that? Like the, the, how the kind of character of the, you know, like police state for lack of a better word has changed. Cause I feel like, you know, it's, it's less like, like blatantly horrible, in terms of the behavior of the cops, because they're afraid of like, like sparking a sort of social media controversy, despite, you know, I mean, they still do it sometimes, but it feels like it's less common now versus once you get sucked into that, you know, like, like the, the, uh, you know, the 50 year sentences are just not at all uncommon anymore. I don't know. What, what is your perspective on that?
2: Well, you know, I, I don't really think it's a one or the other kind of situation, right? I wish yeah. that we could say that we had let go of one form of brutality as we engage in this other one. But the truth is we're still shooting people left and right. It's just that we have video footage True. of it now. Yeah. Yep. And that's what's really changed is that we have to look at it. That, that activists like that child who formed, who filmed the George Floyd murder are forcing us to look at what has happened when a lot of people who didn't, who were not being targeted by the police and didn't see it every day could live in blissful ignorance of that in the past. Um, or it was known, but it was just a thing that was sort of accepted. You know, oh, it's just too bad that certain segments of our population are so brutal, but we really can't do anything about it, so we're not going to. And, um, you know, that just happens to black and brown people that that attitude um, enabled the bureaucratic devastation that you're talking about. I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much we go after children and determine bureaucratically that, that these people are gonna live in prison for most of the rest of their lives while folks are still children. I know a child in Michigan who was sentenced to life without parole at the age of 12 Life without Fuck. parole at the age of twelve, and <laughs> what I mean, do you even say to that, I I don't know, I don't know. I mean, he was he was too young to be put in the adult system at the time that he was sentenced in an adult court, and because in the intervening years the U.S. Supreme Court said in Miller v. Alabama that you can't give a mandatory life without parole sentence to children anymore, uh, there was a legal um, opportunity that it's not a loophole. It was just an opportunity that enabled that kid to go free at the age of 18. But still, he spent the age of 12 to the age of 18 in prisons because we decided that that was a fit sentence for a child. And the truth is that if you end up in a juvenile facility at any point in your childhood in the United States, you have a likelihood a probability of serving an average of three adult prison sentences just because you've set foot in a youth facility at some point in your childhood. And that—that that is not a logical conclusion to draw. That is not a thing that should be happening to people. But if we decide that you're a bad kid, bad enough for police involvement, When you're that young, when everybody knows that your brain is not formed and people do stupid things all the time and rich and privileged and white kids do just as many bad things as folks who come from other places, but those can be swept under the rug a lot of times. Things like drunk driving and the kinds of pranks that kids play that can be dangerous when they don't really realize that they're dangerous. If you're wealthy enough and you have the right resources, that can be swept under the rug and dealt with extrajudicially. And if you are a kid sometimes doing far less or with far more necessity, like being a drug runner for older people at the age of 13 because your family needs to eat, which happens to a fair number of folks, then you weren't inherently criminal. You weren't even necessarily making really bad decisions. Is it a bad decision to go to the one place where you know how to find money where somebody will employ you as a 13-year-old when there's no food in your house? I can't tell you how many kids I've met who have a story that sounds something like that. And that is, it is the failure of social services, the failure of us to take care of issues like poverty, right. hunger, lack of health care, uh, addiction of all different kinds that have produced our ability to make what you're calling the bureaucratic system, where if if you get tripped up somewhere along the way, we can hide you away and we can say that you have broken with our social contract and fundamentally, we can say that you're not really human anymore, and that's what makes your torture and your ongoing seclusion from the rest of the world not only possible, but something that we don't have to think too much about. If we really, really treated everybody in prison as if they were full human beings, the same way that we would treat members of our own family, then prisons wouldn't exist because we could not right. conscience what we do to people.
1: And they don't have to. I mean, look at the very ingenuity of those imprisoned in the way that they did the hunger strike and the way, and, and even the sense of community that the lifers, okay, we're going to be here for decades and decades. We, we better uh, make sure the quality of life. I mean, those are, are the exact things, ingenuity, commitment, relationships, community, that if allowed to occur in the real world outside of prisons, would lead to, to human flourishing in communities. And, and those are the very things that are prevented and people are punished for not being able to have them. Uh, and, and instead, they are forced to create them in, in these cages. But um, I, I, you know, I, it's tough to, to come away with hope when studying, um, these stories. Um, but, but I, I, I wonder where do you find yourself when thinking about Russell and, um, you know, the complexity of his story and the, uh, the things that have to be mourned and grieved as well as what inspires others, uh, in it at the end of the day, what, what, what what can we learn from the ongoing? Because I think we should we should mention that not just twelve year olds, but eighty year olds. Um, yeah. You know, he's not quite eighty, but he has terminal cancer and he has been denied the ability to live out his remaining days, uh, even at this uh, old age. Ah. After fifty years in prison, thirty years in solitary confinement, our system is so cruel today that that we will not let an old man be with his family in his final days. So, uh, how do you, how do you reckon with that? It's such a visceral thing. I, I can't imagine um yeah tell us tell us
0: about his uh, children um he's got seven kids like what what is their sort of perspective on this like like what what have they kind of taken away from the story?
1: They're fighting for him to get out for one right
2: yeah, they want their father home I mean they they Wouldn't. too are devastated, they are overwhelmed um Teresa, the eldest of his children gave me an incredible interview for this article and um, when I called her up, nobody in her family had told her that I was going to call and I, I thought that they had and so it was kind of this cold call and I said, hey, I, you know, I've been emailing with your father, I'm writing this story, that I'm connected to these people who know your family and I really want to do my small part if I can do anything in helping to, to make more people aware of your father and hopefully Sway some public sentiment towards bringing him home. Um, would you talk to me? And and several other members of the family I said the same thing to, and they just said, I you know, I need to think about it, and they never got back to me. They were too overwhelmed and too much pain to talk about it. Teresa spoke to me for over two hours in a kind of flood where I hardly, I don't think I really did ask a question. I just said, you know, do you feel comfortable doing this? This is why I'm writing this story. And she thought about it for a minute, and then she said, okay, and then she just started talking and she told me her early memories of her father. She told about the incredible stress and toll that it took on her, the health problems that it caused her to live with the constant stress with the FBI raiding their house, with uh, children at school showing up with news articles about her father when she was in middle school and um teachers being cruel to her after one of her father's escapes, just on and on things that that a person who committed no crime, who didn't even really understand what her father had done, suffered profoundly across decades because our system is so inhuman and so cruel. And she believes very much that her father will come home one day, despite the fact that he's serving two life sentences plus 25 years. She desperately needs him to come home and has fought for him throughout her adult life. She also took in over 20 foster children, uh, many of whom had incarcerated parents. She ran after school programs for people with incarcerated parents. She's an extraordinary woman. And she told me such, um, she was so generous in the way that she told her story to me, a perfect stranger who she never saw and only talked to on the phone. And at the end of it, she said, you know, I think this is the last interview I'm ever going to do. I'm in my 50s and I've been telling this story for my whole life. This is my whole life. I never set out to become a prison activist, but people come to me to fight for political prisoners. People come to me to fight for black folks in prison. People come to me to talk about the families, and I have shown up again and again and done what I could, but now I want some other kind of life. I want my father home, and I want a different life, and I am both deeply inspired by every member of this family, Maroon and the, the other folks who talked to me, his wife, his children, um, I am given hope that human beings could survive all that they have survived and still be such beautiful people with such interesting stories to tell and such big personalities and so much life and fire and next generations coming up behind them who they have raised successfully in a dangerous world. But I am also devastated for all of them that I... My own father served 20 years in prison in Texas, and I was blessed enough to have five years in freedom with him before he passed away. And I so want that for the Schultzes. I so want them to have some window of time. As much time as possible. As much time as they can have.
0: Who 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 could make that happen? Would it be the governor of Pennsylvania?
2: The governor of Pennsylvania absolutely could make that happen. The judge who oversees his case, who recently denied him medical release could make that happen. You can always reapply for medical release because your medical status is something that shifts over time. It's never a fixed point. So I believe his lawyers, his lawyers have told me that they will seek his medical release again. And that, you know, maybe the story that I wrote could help to sway something in that he was, he sought medical release before my story was published. Um, his health will only get worse. And uh, the judge had the gall to say at that hearing that though she thought everybody deserved the chance to go home and die with dignity with their families, she still thought he was a danger to society. The man is 78 years old. He has no intestines. They were removed because of his colorectal cancer, which is stage four and aggressive. He survived COVID in prison in a wheelchair with no intestines and stage four cancer. And they will not let this man come home. I don't care what he did. Nobody should be in prison in that condition and nobody is a danger, not a a public safety threat in that condition.
1: Yeah. Again, just the judge, the judge is the public safety threat. I mean, obviously.
2: Yeah. I mean, the president of the United States is capable of pardoning him too, but that's not going to happen either.
1: Oh, really? Is it?
0: uh, I thought, I thought the president uh, didn't, didn't control like state level crimes.
2: I think he, I, maybe I'm wrong on that point, but I think he could if he wanted to. I don't know if anybody's ever be, he'd tried. Probably it.
0: twist some arms at least. But the the, the, the governor the, definitely the, has the right the, to,
2: yeah. and uh, and the judge.
0: And that you know, I mean, that's to me t- like like the the question, like the the sickness of the system and the cruelty of it. You know, the, like oh, we have this a fucking 78 year old man with terminal cancer with no intestines and we're go- we're not going to let him out cuz he's going to knock over a 711 or something like fuck off that's bullshit you're just vindictive cruelty or worse you fear you know political backlash from somebody trying to lie about what this guy's going to do nobody commits crimes if they've <laughs> terminal cancer like what is wrong with you and you know We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll
1: promote your piece and hopefully we can be part of, uh, many others that put yeah, some we, pressure. We
0: will harass the governor of Pennsylvania online, you know, cause Thank it's you. like the best we can do, you know, to just yeah. be like, give this guy a fucking a few months at least, you know, with his, and, and, and experience a little bit of freedom and, uh, uh, to compensate for, for the decades of torture and imprisonment that he experienced um, you know he has paid for whatever crimes he may have done 100,000 times and more um, and that you know it's it's
1: well, and, 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 you know, even beyond that, that there's no moral accounting that could cancel out the violence or death or torture done by anyone in, in, in these stories. But yeah. we can always choose to love in the new moment yeah. and make new choices Mercy. to be, yeah. to be more compassionate, to be more uh, of what we should be and build a world where uh, at every opportunity we, um, we, we, we confess our sins and we, we grieve and mourn the harms and we, we, we devote ourselves to each other uh, to have a more yeah. loving and just world. right?
0: Leaving this guy locked up is not going to bring back any of the police officers who were killed back in 1970 or whenever it was. Yeah. But what we can do right now is to let him out, to live out his last days, you know, to 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 have contact with his children who still exist and who want to see him. And that seems to me, you know, like the absolute bare minimum of a decent and civilized society. And you know, so <laughs> hopefully and, and the, the governor uh, listens to our podcast. But and
1: let me ask my last question, Ashley, because you know so much about this, obviously personally, professionally, through uh, the many relationships and and um, experiences you've had. I understand that that uh, you know. Police and prison abolition isn't merely the dismantling of these oppressive structures, that it has a positive vision for um, preventing the very harms that are so inadequately and um, you know, not just not solved but reproduced, actually, and exacerbated. But I think that if we just tomorrow totally shut down all prisons and uh, got rid of all the police, you know, that, that exists in this country, it would be an unmitigated benefit to humanity. And, um, and so I just wonder what you think in terms of, it's a long process to try to reverse all these many decades and hundreds of years of, um, you know, racist harm and violence um, that are institutionalized. But uh, do you have any doubt in your mind that, that tomorrow if we just stopped these, as, as Ryan put it, um, kind of gears of, of institutionalized violence, that um, there would be a lot more love and freedom um, the next
2: day. I don't doubt that. Uh, I, I wonder what the fallout would look like. I mean, if we, if we had the ability to so radically throw open the doors and let everybody come home, does that mean that we would send out the National Guard to police the neighborhoods that people go home to? does it mean that there's a moral panic where everybody freaks out that, that folks in prison got to go home? Um, do they all of a sudden become blamed for the next COVID variant or, you know, what, what happens to all of those people? And do they have the, the structural support to be able to live decently and not just be, Uh, an overwhelming presence to their families because people who come home from prison don't have a place
1: necessarily. They
2: don't necessarily have a place to go to. And even the ones who do, even a family like mine that was solidly middle-class able to really help my father and have all the resources that he needed present. He was not at all dangerous. He was never dangerous, but the level of trauma that he endured and what it felt like for us as a family to account for the 20 years that we're missing that uh you know we lot. had the resources and a, a safe and quiet home in which to process all of that, and we were able to support my father and he was elderly and didn't have to immediately go out and find a job, and we were financially stable and so forth, but it was still a heck of a lot to deal with and i and we welcomed the opportunity to do so it was such a a, a we gloried in the new trauma because we had let go of the old one, but it was still yeah. trauma, especially for him to come home and realize that you don't know how to use an ATM or a microwave or how to turn on the television to be an adult who doesn't know how to do those things. And where the rest of the world moves very fast is More a humiliation, hum- right? It's total humiliation and it is very painful and infantilizing. And, um, I think we need we need to create a a way of being patient with people, a way to help people get moving again and be healthy and included and a way not to interrogate everybody over and over and over again about why you were in prison and how much you did or did not deserve to be there. One of the things that's so painful for folks who come home and everybody else who loves them is that every time they meet new people and somebody finds out that they were in prison, it's like you owe them the whole story. You owe them the chance to judge you anew. And if we actually thought our system worked, which I don't think anybody actually believes that, even if they claim that they do, we wouldn't need to interrogate people when we come home because we would say your debt is paid, you have a fresh start, please begin again. It, like if you lost a job and you decide to enter a new field, people don't go, well, why didn't it work out when you were a dentist? You know, it's not a thing that you're going to have to be questioned about for the rest of your life. And it's not the most important defining story about who you are. Uh, I think that people should get to be the rich, fascinating individuals who they are. So it's, it is both that we need to completely dismantle these structures of oppression, what my fellow colleagues and I are calling the carceral state. But we also have to create a new state that welcomes people, that embraces them, that says we actually want everybody to thrive. And that is both structural in terms of social support services and opportunities for good jobs for everybody and good education and good health care. But it's also cultural. We have to say we're not terrified of you all the time. And we want you to live next door. We want you to teach our children. We want you to be part of our churches and mosques and communities. We want you, period. We want you in our communities.
0: Yeah. Boy, and especially, you know, if you're over 50, you're not committing any more crimes, you know, But like outside of a tiny, tiny, tiny minority, you know. And that's, I think, representative of how, Americans need to be more realistic about, you know, like people misbehave. This is a thing that all societies have, have dealt with throughout all time. And you're not going to, uh, you know, eradicate it by being incredibly cruel to the people that you maybe happen to catch. Uh, uh, because in Phil- in Philadelphia, the murder clearance rate is about 40%. You know, it's just, you have a better than even chance of getting away with it if you kill somebody. Um, and, and how just, many you know, of the people
2: that we've caught were caught for the thing they actually did or, you know, those cases yeah, were all how many, solved right. above board yeah, many, correctly, got the right yeah, person.
0: Yeah. If we if we take the police's word for it, but even that less than mm-hmm. half pathetic. And so, yeah, I th- I think it's uh uh it's it's indicative of you know we need a, a change of attitude in how we approach like the fallibility of human beings and and how people can actually be re- rehabilitated and um, reintroduced as uh, members of society especially especially i think you know like like the 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 the, the worst cruelty i in in uh, in the system that, I mean, maybe it just hits me particularly bad, but it's, it's people who are dying people who are, who are sick. Um, and they just want a little, a little taste, a little taste of freedom before they finally croak. And they've been in there for, for, uh, years like your, your friend Maroon. And this is, uh, uh, uh tens of thousands of, of people, mostly men, but, I'm probably a few women, you know, like the number of people who are imp- incarcerated in the United States, uh the aging is becoming a, a very yes. real problem, you know, like like there there are tons and tons of these these uh, like like geriatric prisoners basically who who are basically debilitated and require constant care. Yes. And I think it is just cruel beyond almost description to leave these people in in uh in cages away from any kind of uh contact with the people that they may know uh outside to you know to people who could not possibly even physically commit a crime you know to just be like listen you know what whatever your problem is whatever you did you paid for it you're gonna die like get out of here and you know but that's where we're at. You know, we are we are at trying to like like cut down the brutality of our system by one percent, two percent, five percent. And I think, you know, we did an episode on the Krasner, uh, the district attorney in Philadelphia who has cut the uh, in in being the district attorney for for, for like a couple of years now has cut mm-hmm. the number of a uh, years uh, sentence sort of served, in yeah. Philadelphia by 20,000 20,000 years of of people being stuck in a cage down and that's i don't think particularly Im- impressive um but it is pretty good you know like to start yeah, it's a start. It's a start. It's That's a the start. thing. That's
1: I mean, because if you know, if we don't use that adage that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, we'll never get anywhere in, in helping actual people and the lives they're living right now. And when we have to, we have to, you know, just the way that you said, every minute of freedom matters. Uh, so every every fight that we can fight makes a difference. So we should all not be too despairing. Because that can lead to cynicism, apathy, and a lack of, of fight. And we need to keep the fight going for these people.
2: We right. do. And we also have to believe that this is not inevitable.
1: Right. This yeah. does it's not, not have to happen.
2: It's a choice. And part yeah. of part of that is taking each one of these steps, no matter how small, whatever we can take, to say, I know that change is not only possible, but it's coming. We cannot just keep barreling into the the worst consequences of late capitalism forever. We must at some point say we can't just make money off of the backs of incarcerated people. We can't just say that there are whole generations and families of people who we're going to shut off from the rest of the world. And we can't keep killing people. I mean, Maroon missed the death penalty by a hair's breadth because he got sentenced in a moment when... Politically, his judge knew that the U.S. Supreme Court was very likely to suspend the death penalty for the entire United States for a period of years, which it did in the 70s before bringing it back. And the only reason he doesn't get the death penalty is because a lot of those people who got the death penalty, uh, who had a death sentence at the time that the U.S. Supreme Court suspended it, ended up finding a way to get parole later. And they wanted to make sure that he was going to burn in hell. They did not want him to ever see freedom at the time that he was sentenced. But the death penalty in Pennsylvania and a lot of other places has to stay on our radar too. That we are, we are not only letting people die in prison, which is a huge, profound, horrific scourge upon our nation's morality, but also we are actively killing people in the name of the state right. and saying that, you know, every time they do that, every time we give somebody like Maroon a life sentence, every time we let the state kill somebody, whether it's a police shooting, or a state-sanctioned execution, they do that in your name and mine. They do that in the name of all citizens to say that they are keeping us safe. And until we rise up and say, we are not any safer because a 78-year-old man with no intestines who has colorectal cancer and will soon die, I am no safer because that man is in prison. Until we all say that, it's not going to change.
1: Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Amen. Ashley. That, I think that's a the, the perfect note to end on. You know, we uh we need to rise up and, and we know that if there's no justice there'll be no peace for the state because we're the citizens that have to have to be the ones to bring the state to change. So thank you for, for coming on and talking about um Maroon and, and these stories. Uh thank you for the, the the piece that you wrote and the work that you've done. Um and I guess, you know, there's an autobiography of uh, Maroon that, that can be read as well, right? If, if people want to learn more about his life and his, his, uh, his ideas, right?
2: Well, there's an unpublished autobiography that nobody can yet get a hold of uh, okay, that okay. is a, a huge sprawling thing that needs a little editing and hopefully someday we'll see the light of day. But there is a collection of his writings called Maroon the Implacable. It's a series of essays that he wrote from inside prison, which is quite good and really should be read by a lot more people
1: we'll link to that as well for sure
0: yeah thank absolutely you. we'll link to your article uh, to his essay collection to your your book prison theater and the global crisis of incarceration um but yeah ashley lucas um thanks for coming on the program
2: i'm honored thank you for having me
0: we, we will thanks, so uh, thanks for listening everybody we will see you in the next episode